a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of First Lady and Friends, we had such a fun conversation with an incredible person. Her name is Nail Bright. She is a congressional gold medal winner in 2010. She was part of the WASPs, Women's Air Force Service Pilots. She is a veteran of World War II. She's a centenarian, 100 years old. I can't wait for you to listen. Let's get proximate. Welcome to First Lady and Friends. I have an incredibly special guest here today. Uh, her name is Nail Bright, and I think you've probably seen some coverage of her lately. She was just featured on a PBS special. And this episode is all about veterans, and we have the most incredible veteran here, a true treasure, 100-year-old Nell Bright. Welcome to First Lady and Friends. Thank you very much. So excited to have you. You have an incredible story, and you are such a resource for us. When you've lived a hundred years, there's so much for you to teach us. <laughs> so thank you. Um, so let's let's talk about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, West Texas. What was that like? It was uh, very interesting. I was right in the middle of the Dust Bowl. And uh, it was uh, it was a very good childhood. Actually, we didn't realize that the that the depression was going on as kids, because life just went on. Yeah, and we lived in close to Amarillo, in a little town called Canyon, Texas, and uh, uh, it was about seventeen miles from from Amarillo, so. The wind blew every day. The dust came twice a week at least, rolled in from Oklahoma. So it was uh, it was very it was a great little place to grow up. But so small town, small town, yeah. Okay. So you say you weren't really. You didn't feel affected by the Great Depression, but it was your... Well, we did. My yeah. dad was okay. a bank president, and his bank was... Uh, he had a run on his bank, and we lost everything we had when I was about... in fourth grade, I guess. And yes, everybody. Everybody was in on it, and everybody felt the Depression. That's probably the way we could deal with it, because... We were not alone. Everybody's in the same boat. Interesting. So, you, so your dad uh, lost everything as a banker. My dad was actually a banker as well, <laughs> right? Uh, not during the depression, <laughs> thank goodness. Um, but tell me what, what what that was like in that moment when when you knew things were changing forever. We just uh, moved to another town. And uh, my dad went from being a, 
bank president to working in a filling station, and he was just lucky to have any kind of job. But he had been uh, head of the uh, Texas Bankers Association before then, so he had several friends in the banking business that his um, um, that knew him, of course, and uh, their bank didn't uh, have have a run on it because it stayed open until Roosevelt closed all the banks. So they got together and put my dad in business in a loan company. And then we moved to Canyon, Texas, because there was a college there. And our folks, uh, my brother and I, uh, had had an older brother who was four years older than I. And they wanted us to be able to go to college, and that was one of the best ways to do it was to live in a college town. So it was a great little place. And... We didn't, you know, that was, my dad told, explained it all to us and said, don't worry, I will be taking care of you and and uh, we everybody will get through this. Wow. So your, your dad must have been a big influence in your life because yes. he's the first one that flew with you, right? Uh, well, he didn't fly. I've, I've flown flew with the uh, pilot in the in the uh, barnstorm with the barnstormer we called him that came through our what little was, town. What was that? What's a what's a barnstormer? A barnstormer was some of the World War One pilots that were trying to make a living going through to, in, flying in these old open cockpit airplanes. And they would fly through the countryside like Texas where it was so flat and they would land out in the pasture and take people up for, I think it was 50 cents a ride or a dollar a ride or something. And my my dad asked me if I didn't want to go out and look at the airplane. And I said, sure. So when we got out there, he said, do you want to go up? And I said, sure. So they scrounged a lot of pillows so I could see out the cockpit and went flying when I was eight years old. Oh, my word. I love that so much. And I, th- I guess I put it in the back of my mind somewhere that I wanted to be a pilot. So you weren't afraid at all? Oh, no. That didn't, that didn't scare you to go up in an no. airplane? No. I thought it was great. Amazing, just amazing. <laughs> so that first experience flying, did that change everything for you? What did that change everything for you? Well, it didn't change anything. My my parents would say, tell us from the time we were little. You know, you can do anything you want to do in life if you're big enough to do it. Did you have siblings? What? Siblings? Do you have siblings? I had a brother. Okay. Yes. Did your parents treat you any differently than than your brother? Did they think you could no, do less ne- than him? Not necessarily, no. Good. My mother couldn't uh, teach me how to crochet because I'd rather go play cowboys and Indians with the guys. <laughs> 
I can relate to that. I grew up on a ranch and I ran wild. <laughs> so I can relate to that. So what gave you the confidence to, do you think, to, to do something that many girls weren't doing? Well, there were probably a lot of women pilots around that people didn't even know about. And, uh, and except for Amelia Earhart and then Jacqueline Cochran, who was our commanding officer. And uh, she was in charge of the WASP and talked President Roosevelt into training uh, women to fly because when Pearl Harbor happened and uh, we were bombed by the Japanese, uh, we only... We probably didn't have any more than 800 pilots in the whole Air Force. So we really, they really needed pilots because our mission was to fly the missions here in um, in the States to let the men go overseas because we were not allowed to go overseas. Mm. And the girls were in the Ferry Command and the and uh, they ferried planes, and then we just flew all kinds of different things. I was in a tow target squadron after finishing B-25 school, and I did that after I graduated and had my wings. Mm-hmm. We had the same training as the men, uh, except we were an all-woman air base, I mean, that was the first and last all-woman air race. Wow. <laughs> At Sweetwater, Texas. Wow. So explain to me what WASPs are. Women Air Force Service pilots. Okay. And then, and they were, so you weren't allowed to be in the military. Yeah. As no, far, but you we, were... we wore uniforms and everybody thought we were officers. We had officers. We didn't have a rank. We were technically with civil service. Okay. And, uh, uh, but everybody thought we were officers. We were treated as officers. We were under military orders and the whole thing. And when we were uh, deactivated in, uh, after the war was winding down in, uh, uh, night, in uh, December 20th, 1944, uh, we were, sent home and we paid our own way on everything and our uh, all of our history was frozen all of our files and we did not receive our veteran status for 30 years in 1977 when they announced out of Washington that for the first time in history they were going to train women to fly military airplanes. So we didn't like that very much. (laughs) (laughs) So with the help of Barry Goldwater and General Arnold's son and some other people in Congress and all the women in Congress, uh, we finally passed in 1977 uh, a bill that made us veterans. So 
It took us 30 years to get our veteran status. That's incredible. So you, you had no benefits, no... No benefits after we got, no. It was just, well, as General Arnold said, we proved that we could fly as well as the men. And we had the same training there at Sweetwater, Texas. And except we got no leave between primary, basic, and advanced. So we finished our training in six months, took the men nine months. <laughs> because they took a leave in the yeah. middle of, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> wow. And uh, when I was in the seventh class, and we had to have our private pilot license and 75 hours of flying to qualify uh, to be in. So I saw an article in Flying Magazine when I was out flying one day that uh, they were looking for uh, women to, to apply and gave the address in Fort Worth, Texas, for an interview. So I wrote a letter and sent it in, and I got an answer back to come to Fort Worth for an interview. And I was qualified and had my 75 hours in private pilot license by then. We had to be 21 years old. So, and there were 25,000 women applied for this training, and there were 1,800 accepted. And out of that, there were 1,074 that finished the program and got our wings. So during World War II, we said we were the best-kept secret of World War II. There were 1,000 women pilots flying. A a secret (laughs) that was kept for another 30 years, apparently. It it practically was. And so when we were deactivated, everybody just went home and started another life, you know. Mm. Because some of the girls were able to keep flying because they they had um, uh, money and were able to uh, have, a, you know, a lot of them got their instruction, instructor's license because we had, I don't know, some of them had a lot of hours, like 500 hours when they went. They'd been flying a long time. And later they lowered the age to 18. And, but um, when I went in, it was, uh, we had to be 21. Okay. Wow. Well, I want to keep talking about this and I want to talk maybe some specifics when we come right back. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson. And unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities 
of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back here with Nell Bright. Um, She is a veteran of of World War II. She is 100 years old. And um, this is just really, really fun. I want to get into maybe some some real specifics about what your missions were uh, during the war. Our main mission was to uh, fly uh, here in the States and uh, different types of things to release the men to go overseas because we were not allowed to go overseas. So some of the women, when we finished, uh, when they finished and got their wings, uh, were sent to the ferry command to ferry the planes from factory to the different bases around here. And we ferried some planes, uh, some of the girls, that ferried some planes up to Alaska for the Russian pilots to, that we'd sold. Mostly it was planes we didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> well, sold to the that, Russians. That's probably best. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and uh, then uh, they flew weather missions. They flew training the bombardiers and... Uh, there were 20 out of our class that were sent to B-25 school because the women hadn't flown the twin-engine bombers. So uh, we uh, trained and got our first pilot rating in the B-25 and another instrument rating. And uh, 10 of us were sent to Biggs Field at El Paso, Texas to the 6th Total Target Squadron. And... Ten were sent to Marchfield in uh, Riverside, California. And what we did was to help train the boys at in the Army at Fort Bliss, which was in El Paso, right across the highway from, <laughs> from Biggsfield. And um, uh, we flew, uh, we towed targets behind the uh, B-25 and the B-26, and we flew strafing missions in the P-47, which was just going right down over their heads when they were going out in the desert on a uh, training mission. Out, they had to, were supposed to jump out of the uh, uh, jump out of their trucks and everything and hit the dirt. And sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. But if they didn't, we would come back over a little bit lower. <laughs> so <laughs> make sure they knew. <laughs> be sure they knew. We were flying, uh, towing a target in the B twenty five one night, and the flak started breaking in front of us, and that wasn't supposed to be. The target was behind us because. We trained them in searchlight missions, too, but they were getting the wrong thing, so we had to get out of the way and radioed them and had the crew chief cut the target and radioed to the ground uh, forces that were down there monitoring and weren't monitoring very well. 
And we told them that when they learned to shoot better, we'd come back and help them again. (laughs) (laughs) We were going back to base. (laughs) So they were shooting right at you. They were shooting right at us. They were not getting (laughs) the target in the searchlights. They were yeah, I'd be out of so there, too. I'm glad they weren't very good shooters. <laughs> yeah, they were, they didn't hit oh, my word. That's incredible. So the the target was behind you. You're 2,500 feet behind 2,500 feet. They're supposed to be shooting at the target. Right. They're and terrible that, shots, and they're actually that, shooting at the airplane. They actually were shooting in front of us instead of behind Oh, us. in front. Okay. The flak was breaking in front of us. So as soon as we did that, we just got out of the way real fast. <laughs> wow. Wow. So what other moments? Was there any other moments where you thought, I mean, was there ever a moment where you, I mean, there was fear that you were, that you were scared? No, not really. Uh and I was very fortunate, I guess, that I didn't, um, you know, have to bail out or anything at any time. Uh, some of the girls did, and we lost 38 girls, uh, which was about the same percentage as as the men. Really? Okay. Uh-huh. But um, if you are afraid, you shouldn't be flying in the first place. <laughs> that's that's great advice. <laughs> Probably why I'm not flying be- because <laughs> that, that's uh, you know you can be your own worst enemy. Where did, where did you get that fearlessness? Well, I guess I just grew up that way. It's just part of your personality, always. Because um, uh, I, I had two very strong parents, and. If we were whining about anything, my mother would just look down at us and say, well, just deal with it. <laughs> well, I say that and my kids still whine. <laughs> I, I need to be more stern, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So what are... What were your feelings? You know, I've, I know I've, I've, I've talked. My grandfather was in World War II. I, both of my grandfathers actually mm-hmm. served in World War II as as soldiers. Um, I I know when I've heard my grandpa's story and he's told it, that feeling during you you mentioned Pearl Harbor. What did you feel? I know he felt this real sense of like I have to get involved i have well, to I help think everybody f- felt that way and uh we felt like whatever we could do to help our country and that was um something that actually jacqueline cochran convinced president roosevelt with the help of eleanor uh <laughs> to approve of training women to to fly the missions here uh, in in the states, so the men can go overseas. Because we we were not prepared at all, but we got everybody chipped in and did their part, and we got prepared very fast. Mm-hmm. Quit doing, quit making automobiles, and started making airplanes. Mm. Wow! So factories. The- it was this sense of 
of unity, I guess. Right. I do, do you I guess I haven't seen that for a while. Do you, have you seen that since? Do you no. think in our country? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Well, why do you think but, that is? Well, I mean it wasn't we were in real danger. People did not realize we had German submarines on the east coast and Japanese submarines on the west coast. And as a matter of fact, some of them landed on the east coast, and uh, people and everybody realized how serious it was. Did was there a lot of secrets? I mean, was there? I'm I'm trying to put myself in that moment. Were there a lot of people that didn't understand what was going on because you were in it? Did you have more of a knowledge of of where I mean, the, where the dangers really were, uh, somewhat, but not really. For instance, uh, they were just coming in with radar, then, and and uh, <clears throat> we were training. We didn't know what we were doing, but what we were doing was to say we would be flying um, uh, back and forth, and on a trajectory and uh, and the uh, <clears throat> guys that were were flying with us I mean like the crew chief and stuff um, had boxes of shaft shoe boxes of <laughs> shaft wow. that would open the door and they would drop them out and this was to and we didn't know what it was for but they were experimenting with what they could do to interfere with the radar. Okay. And we would and they would drop all this stuff out of the airplane while we were up at 20,000 feet or something. Of course at 10,000 feet we had to put on oxygen. But um uh, so there were missions like that 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 we were doing that we really didn't know why. Okay. So some things were shared, but some things weren't. Okay. When you, I know that, you know, our, our, our military folks that are coming home now after being deployed, um, you know, we understand a lot more about PTSD and the trauma that, that people experienced. Um, what do you, I mean, did you did you see any of that, and and were you able to understand what it was? We didn't have that term after we came home, but it was there, and people didn't people actually did not realize a lot of the World War Two men and women too had that, but and I would say especially the nurses because they were in combat, yeah. and. Um, so they saw lots of things that we didn't, of course. And we were just tr- trying to follow orders and do our part. But when we got back, big part of us just uh, because I think uh, I think the majority were college graduates, and we just said, "Well, that's done with. Now, what are we going to do next?" You know. I'm 24 years old. I've accomplished my mission. 
So, has so to be a few years ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd you'd really done a lot by the time you're 24. Most of us haven't even done that yet. <laughs> and uh, then we got married and uh, and had two wonderful kids. Well, I want to talk about your family and sort of things you've done post-war when we come right back. We are back with Nell Bright. She is our 100-year-old World War II veteran uh, pilot. She was just, we've had just such a fun conversation. And you, we also brought in for this last segment, we brought in her daughter, Margot Thurman. So welcome to the show, Margot. Thank you. She's been here kind of spurring me on to, to come up with the best questions so that we can have the best stories here. Um, so let's go back and talk about, there. you had an, an experience with your brother in the, in well, the war. My brother was also in the Air Force. He was a sergeant. And he was in Sicily, and he was a crew chief on a B-25. So when he was um, uh, mustered out of the um, uh, the Air Force after he came home from overseas, it just so happened that where he had to come to get everything done for him to be out was in El Paso. And I was stationed there. So I got permission from our uh, commanding officer for to take a B-25 and take him home to Amarillo, which was about an hour. Well, it was a short flight, actually, from that. But uh seems like it was an hour or something. So I thought, oh, he will be thrilled. And I told him that. I said, oh, I've got um, a... a Plane B twenty five. I'm going to take you home, and he's. Oh no, I can take the bus. That's fine. Well, I didn't realize that how nervous he was about his little sister flying the plane that he'd been crew chief on. Big brother. So um, anyway, we had it all arranged, and another gal I flew with a lot, Tommy Thompson. Um, to get him home. Well, he was not a happy camper to getting in that airplane, I'll tell you. And he sat back where the where the crew chief sits. But he was not happy about it. But anyway, so Tommy and I had decided that that we would do the doodle takeoff and give him a... <laughs> <laughs> which... Um, I, I don't know if you know what the Doolittle takeoff is. Tell us is. what it is. <laughs> well, you taxi up to the, to the end of the runway there, and put your uh, and put the brakes on with your toe toes. You the brakes are right on the top of the rudder. So we both put hold the brakes and we run the engines up as far as they can go and then you turn loose the brakes and you get off the runway pretty fast <laughs> well he didn't think that. he was back there not saying a word he did not say a word during the whole flight and when we went over canyon which was i was going to emerald air force base and when we got over Canyon, I said, I think we should buzz our hometown, don't you? <laughs> oh, no, we don't need to do that. 
And, well, we did it anyway, of course. <laughs> and I have never seen anybody so happy to get out of an airplane <laughs> in my life <laughs> when we got, got on the ground and and got uh, led to where they wanted us to park and everything and cut the engines, and he was able to get back on the ground. And he didn't say what got out of that airplane didn't say one word <laughs> how was that ride home <laughs> so that was that was a lot of fun for tommy and me anyway <laughs> not so much for your brother <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what what use are we as sisters if we can't give our brothers a hard time after all the stuff they've done to us <laughs> right <laughs> i love that story that's so much fun so you so you came home you were you graduated from college yeah and and then you then what well i had one of my majors was in economics and of course i'd grown up with my, my one dad. of your majors yeah <laughs> uh being in the banking business so i guess that that was kind of what i was interested in so after the kids were in school then i was uh, uh of course we had to have training Mm-hmm. Um, license and everything and I was hired uh, by um, uh, an investment company there in Phoenix and uh, was able to I was living in Arizona then and I was able to uh, get my license and become a stockbroker and then later on got other license so that I was qualified to to be a manager, and <clears throat> that way I could have an office by myself. So after I had, I started in uh, uh, 1957, and I was one, uh, there was two women stockbrokers in Phoenix, and uh, well, I was one of them. And so that was um, quite quite interesting and i didn't retire till i was 85 because i enjoyed it so much wow that's incredible (laughs) and had lots of clients you know for years and years so well and i have this interesting thought too because growing up in the depression and seeing what happened right in the in the stock market and what precipitated the great depression did that i know a lot of folks were were leery of banking, were leery of, of stock, but right. you, you jumped right in. Did I what? You jumped right into this, yes, this world. Because you- I found it very, very interesting to me. And then, of course, I took uh, uh, classes and everything in financial advising and everything like that. So, mm. yeah, yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of um, trust that had to be built back into that, that system. Right. And it was just a, it was a very, and you were kind of, uh, I was a single mom for around six years or so. And uh, that way, because you're kind of your own boss, that way you can go to school functions. You, I mean, you fix your own time pretty much. Okay. You're not, it's not a, you know, nine to five thing. Well, so, Margot, you you 
grew up with a mom as, you know, she was a fighter pilot. She was a stockbroker. Talk about that experience. Well, on the flying, I never really found out anything about that till my early 20s. No kidding. Right. Wow. Because as mom said, it was over with and they went there to something else, you know. But so I grew up and my mother worked. And it was my assumption from that, because my mother also always told me, you can do whatever you want to do. You just have to do it. But um, it was just my assumption that, yes, out of my other friends, nobody else's mothers worked. They were all at home, stayed at home. But in my eyes at the time, it was when my mother made her choice to work. So that's why she's working. And the other women made their choices not to work. So that's why they're doing that. It wasn't that only very few women did it at that time. Mm -hmm. And even nowadays, I think we see some of the same thing or people not going in quite the direction they want to. Yeah, it's not their choice that they're exactly. not it living is not their, their choice. choice. But it should always be Whichever male or female, it's everything should be your choice. I love that. My mom actually tells a, a similar story. My grandma w- worked. My grandma was, um, she was a, an educator. She was a teacher. And my mom talks about all her friends' moms were at home and hers was <laughs> at the school teaching. <laughs> so yeah. it was a very similar experience. Well, and when you talk about mother didn't share this. But um, her her mom, my my grandmother, well, she went to college, mm-hmm. so that's a whole generation before. Yes. And she married my grandfather in 1910, but he asked her in 1908, and she said, "Well, I'm going to finish my degree first, and then I will get married." Wow. And she was a teacher, but most women then. Wouldn't have said that no. in the early 1900s. <laughs> it would have been, yes, I'll drop what I'm going to do and stuff. So, so that as mother talks about about her mom and dad, those were the kind of role models she grew up with. And the power of education. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, the power of and and maybe that's you know you 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 know Nell, you talked about um, growing up with sort of a fearlessness and and maybe. Not not worrying about what what other people were thinking right. or telling you what you couldn't do, and maybe you know I don't know is it your parents that sort of instilled a, a, a confidence in you through your education, right? Mm-hmm. And another another thing we have a lot of people ask us uh, about uh, during if we were trying to you know work with the feminist movement during and we said we we never even heard of that word <laughs> it and wasn't there we, that had absolutely nothing to do with us flying airplanes we f- flew the airplanes because we love flying and it was a wonderful opportunity for us to get to fly the big airplanes mm. you was there discrimination do you feel like I mean, did you feel at the time there was you were being partic- discriminated? No, not particularly. Uh, oh, there was there was some, but uh, thanks to Jackie Cochran, uh, 
<clears throat> she was very strict, and the, the uh, and we had very strict rules to go by. And she said, uh, "What you girls do, what one of you does affects all of you." That's powerful. And uh, you know, this is this is the way it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And when we were reported for duty at Bigsfield. The last times the commanding officer of the base didn't even know the women were flying and here the <laughs> and uh, uh, he said, "Well, I don't have any room for you because we've been at Matherfield and we we were considered officers. We had officer quarters and um, uh, for our B twenty five school." And <clears throat> he said, "I don't have any place for you." You just have to go down in the uh, in the enlisted barracks. So one of the girls who was uh, kind of our leader uh, uh, said, motioned for us just to be quiet, <laughs> not say anything. And so as soon as we got out of there, she called Jacqueline Cochran. And we went on down to the, you know, the barracks that had all beds lined up and everything, and you had that much space, you know. And she's so she told Jackie what was going on, and Jackie said, "All right, I'll see you tomorrow." And Jackie, before noon the next day. She, Jackie flew in in her own airplane from Washington, D.C., where she was then. And by noon, we had our own BOQ, our bachelor's office's quarters, and our rooms and everything. He had plenty of room. He just didn't want, And there were already some girls stationed. There's some wasps stationed there uh, in the my, the tow target squadron was down at one end of the field, and the and the biggest part of the field was a B twenty four training uh, base. So um, anyway, that's how much pull Jackie had. I mean, it, she because General Arnold was right behind her, whatever she wanted to do. Wow. Well, and that's a that's a testament, I think, to to a, a confident woman. In a, in a time when you didn't see that a lot in standing, you know, women standing up and that's right, telling people what they needed. That's right. And then I think it's probably also a testament to mentorship. Um, she sounds like was an incredible mentor for you. Well, Jackie uh, was orphaned at seven, and she pretty much raised herself, and and by the time she was. In her 20s, she had a cosmetic firm in New York City. Wow. And so she was, <laughs> and you just didn't mess with Jackie. <laughs> That's the uh, the power of resilience as well, a very resilient person who, right. who used her, right. who used her um, tough upbringing to really launch herself into yeah. to a powerful place. That's incredible. Margo, um, what else about your mom stands out? I mean... She, She's a force. Uh, what what else did you see growing up um, from your mom? 
Well, mother, mother allowed myself and my brother Scott to be ourselves, to um, do some things that maybe some parents wouldn't immediately, but she was just very much behind us. And um, I, I myself dealt with um, dealt with epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but even though my brother said, "Let's use it, Margot, and we can get away with murder." Okay, <laughs> um, that didn't that didn't happen because Mom just kept smiling and wouldn't fall for anything. So you automatically knew, just like any kids figure it out around adults, which ones they can play around with, okay, and get their way, and which ones they can't. But then also my mom was so warm and caring and honest. And then growing up, as I looked at my grandfather, we called him Pappy, mom's father he was a real people person everybody loved him he knew everybody and he kept everybody feeling great well growing up my mother was the exact same way and so therefore as she would deal with people if she needed or wanted something everybody listened to her yeah and it happened very charismatic leader. Yeah. It sounds I don't like. know if that was quite no, explaining. That's a, no, well, that's thank a, you, thank you, Margot. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, you're welcome, Mother. <laughs> uh, I, thought, this... I thought maybe since you're since you've just recently turned a hundred, maybe I should share that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think that's the beauty of 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 this conversation is really talking about um, and learning from. From you and and your experiences and how we can be better, um, how we can be a better mother, how we can be more caring towards people, but also what you've shown is you can stand up for yourself as well. Um, that you don't have to be one or the other. You can be kind and com- and compassionate, but still stand up and and be fearless. And and so thank you for that powerful example. Um, is there anything else that we that we've missed that we that we want to talk about here today? Well, I can I think we've covered practically everything. We <laughs> I don't know. A hundred years is a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. But uh, I've just uh, had a, had a very uh, interesting life for myself. I too, love that. And, so I said you know, I was blessed with with the two great kids, and yeah. it was just been a lot of fun. Well, thank you again for for your service. Um, as as our Veterans Day approaches, we are we're more and more grateful for these um, for our World War II veterans that that we are so happy that you're still with us and, <laughs> Thank you. and we can continue to learn from you. Uh, like I said, the, the powerful examples of, of the greatest generation um, we, we need to have, we need to have that unity. We need to have that wisdom from you. So right. thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Margo. Appreciate thank it. Thank you now. very much. Thank and, you and for again, having Thank us. you for your service.
We'd also like to thank Margot Thurman, Nell's daughter, for joining us as well. Nell will be featured on a PBS special called American Veteran that is currently airing. Thanks for being a friend.